Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Uh, you're listening to Your Good uh, Feelings podcast about movies. Sarah. Alex. What are we getting into today? We're talking about what at least two thirds of the people in this episode deem the best or at least their favorite movie musical ever. <laughs> it is. It is Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> Bop shabop, you'll never stop the terror. I think that's the right lyric. It's our sequel to Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> and we have Dana Schwartz back. And it's it's like a sequel and a prequel because this is the movie that I like to think whoever was making these choices at Disney watched and was like, hire these men. Yes, <laughs> totally. I didn't fully realize that somewhere that's green and part of this world are the same song. Yeah, and the working title for part of your world was somewhere that's wet. Okay, cool. Like not just like I want to be there. It's like it's like the same song. <laughs> like if Ariel had a trash can to lean against, she would. Yeah, and I love the parallel too that these are both songs by like profoundly innocent souls imagining this world where like it will be so wonderful. You know, a tract house of our own, plastic on the furniture. What's that word again? Street. And like, as the viewer, you're like, no, the, uh, those things kind of suck, actually. Yes. <laughs> but like, you're so carried away by their sheer longing for something that the people actually living that life are pretty tired of a lot of the time. Howard Ashman, where would we be without you? <laughs> who would we be without you? Uh, I can't even imagine. Like, who would I be without this movie and that four or five year stretch of great Disney animated movies with some version of somewhere that's green. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, we lost Howard Ashman in the early nineties and then, you know, any Disney movie, like I forget what it's called in Mulan, but you know, who is that girl I see? Like that's got Howard Ashman's DNA in it. And like how far I'll go in Moana, like that's Howard Ashman's DNA too. Like his, we are all his children. Yes. Thank you, Howard, for uh, spiritually birthing us. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you, Howard? But speaking of Disney, I, I feel like on Disney Channel or at Disney World or something at Halloween, there's Mickey's Not So Scary Something Something. And this is You Are Good's <laughs> Not So Scary Halloween season now because we're talking about movies that I would say are all technically horror or like are playing with horror themes and yet all of these are movies that I would be comfortable showing a 12 year old if I happen to have one to be showing movies to. Yeah, totally. They're all soft. I don't know why Twitter somehow was like, you know what? Alex should just be notified of every horror tweet ever. I don't know if I like accidentally clicked a thing and now I just get a stream of stuff in the algorithm. But as a result, I see a lot of people talk about horror based on whether or not they're scared by it. And it feels yeah. like it misses a huge point. I think that being scared is important or whatever, but I really love this collection of movies that we're about to dive into, which starts here. And then and then next week, we're going to do Rocky Horror Picture Show that play with all these elements of horror that I find actually much more interesting than being scared. Right. <laughs> My favorite YouTuber, this show's favorite YouTuber, arguably Jenny Nicholson, has talked in the past about, you know, people who really dislike Kylo Ren as a main antagonist in Star Wars. And this one of the complaints being like, he's not scary. And I think her analysis was like, well, 
there aren't a lot of villains who I'm actually scared of that like determine that I'm going to like the thing they're in because they're scary to me. Like, I'm not afraid of Jigsaw Mm. for that matter. My idea currently is to do, and by the way, you can steal this idea if you want to. I think the world needs multiple of these, is to do a parody Hallmark Christmas movie script where Jigsaw is, a, is, an, is an old toy maker in a small town that a busy businesswoman goes to and he helps her find love or something. But like the longer you stay with any horror movie franchise, anyone who's initially scary over time, like becomes rather dear to you, I think. Like you're immersed in the Halloween movies right now, mm. which is bonus episode fodder. And like Michael Myers can only stay scary for so many installments. Like after a while, you're like, are you brushing your hair with a pitchfork or what? (laughs) (laughs) One thing I've been trying to do a lot more that I, I haven't done historically as much as I should is just to imagine what it was like to see these movies the first time context free. And I don't do that enough. And I did that in watching Little Shop of Horrors this time is just like, you know, I was doing it with Halloween, just being like, this movie must have been terrifying if you had no frame of reference for what was going on when you first went in to watch it. But yeah, in watching Little Shop of Horrors returning to our subject, I was just trying to imagine what it was like to see this in the theater and to go with every expectation you have of what a musical had been up to that point. And then you go and see a musical and it is about like a very convincing murderous plant. It's a beautiful puppet. And I, I think that that must have been wonderful. So, so welcome to October and welcome to our soft horror lineup. Welcome to October. Step on some crunchy leaves, drink some pumpkin spice, whatever. You don't have to watch a scary movie, but if you have that inclination, it's awfully nice. Yeah. Welcome to sweater weather. Yes, absolutely. If you are inclined to watch more horror movies, I did a post on our website of just a list of all the horror movies we've done in the past. So if you want to look at other horror movies we've done, you can find it there. I didn't realize how many we've done, but we've done like 10 at this point. Neither should I. <laughs> I mean, it's unsurprising because that's like, I mean, that we became friends because we we're both Nightmare on Elm Street fans. And I think that's pretty obvious a lot of the time. Yeah, it is. And I just never think about it. I, I never think like, oh, we're doing horror. But yeah, putting it together, I was like, oh, yeah, we've done mm-hmm. quite a bunch. So, OK, we're going to we're going to dive into this episode. What do you want people to have in their brain and their hearts when they get in? I mean, if you haven't seen this movie, then I really recommend it. Like not every movie that we cover, am I like, you should watch it, you know, because I hate it when people tell me to watch movies. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do. Um, (laughs) and I don't think that people should watch things just because I happen to like them, but this one, I do recommend it to people like, and I think the main reason for that is that like, it always gives me some experience of pure joy. Like no matter how sad I am or how tired I am or what's going on when I put on this movie or just listen to the soundtrack, like it just does something to my heart. And I just think that's such a gift. And if you haven't gotten to experience it yet, then like lucky you. That's amazing. (laughs) Surely watch this movie just to dissect the choices Ellen Green makes in singing Suddenly Seymour. Anything you can put a microscope on and spend a lot of great time with it in this movie. So uh. there are like some movies that it's amazing that they exist in a, you know, in a how did this get made other podcast title kind of a way because they're so bad or ill-advised. And this is one where I'm always like, how did this happen? Like it feels complete 
in a way that is rare. And I, I also think that movie musicals are very, very hard to make. And I actually remember I tweeted a while ago, like, it's funny that like, we've never really consistently figured out how to make movie musicals. And then everyone had a blast responding with a movie musical that they like, which I'm sure was fun, but it's like, <laughs> right. But like as a genre, I don't think we've ever really gotten a handle on it. I think it's not like a Western or a sci-fi or an action movie where it's like you kind of figure out how to do the basic bare bones of the thing. It's like movie musicals, I feel like, are reinvented or re-evolved every 10 or 20 years. Like most of them, you're like, well, it was, you know, it was pretty good, <laughs> but it doesn't really, you know, you got to see the original to really experience it. And I'm biased because I haven't seen a stage production of Little Shop of Horrors, although Dana Schwartz, our guest, has, and we get to talk about that with her. But it, this feels both very cinematic and very stagey in a way that I think is, I just haven't seen that anywhere else. Yeah. Maybe Dogville, but that's a, that's not a fun movie. <laughs> that's a very different experience. <laughs> All right, well let's uh let's go shopping. What a strange and unusual podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of quick things before we get into it. You are good, a feelings podcast about movies. It's made possible with your support. Thank you so so much to everyone who's supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. There are bonus episodes, a couple a month. You can find one that's coming up about Halloween, the movie Halloween, and just so many things around the movie Halloween. We talk about all sorts of things in those episodes, not just about movies, though we do talk about movies. That'll be out very soon. You can find it at patreon.com slash you are good. It's also made possible by generous support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative content production company, a video production company based in Portland, Maine, though it does work there at these here United States. If you need video produced, you need content produced, talk to the folks at Knack Factory. Thanks to everyone who sent us or told us or shared with us their wonderful support of the music of You Are Good, Volume 1, which is by Carolyn Kendrick, who is our producer and our music director, made an album of songs that have shown up you know, across the You Are Good universe, a lot of songs from past shows. It's been so well received. You can find a link to that in the show notes if you haven't checked that out yet. It's available on Bandcamp all this month. Uh, we would love it if you bought it. <laughs> I mean a lot. <laughs> if you bought it and listened to it in your ears. Uh, speaking of music, we have playlists that we put together for each of our episodes. Spotify playlist. You can find a link in the show notes as well. It's music that is inspired by our conversations about the episode. It's just a hodgepodge of things that we like. And uh, seemingly you enjoy it too because you seem to be listening to it. So thank you. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. That's all we need to talk about right now before talking about Little Shop of Horrors with our wonderful, splendid friend, Dana Schwartz. How's it going in there? How's it going in your uh, your snowy snow fort? Yeah, I'm in a cocoon that I've constructed out of a motel quilt on top of a motel lamp. And if I burst into flames while we record this episode, it was worth it because we're talking about Little Shop of Horrors with Dana Schwartz. I've never been more excited. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Dana, how do we know you? How does like the world know you? What a great way to conceal your amnesia, Alex. <laughs> the world might know me from my Twitter, Dana Schwartz with three Z's. Or my podcast, Noble Blood. Or perhaps they know me from my uh, upcoming YA book called Anatomy, a love story which they can pre-order now. But I actually, I feel like I met 
you, Sarah, because like years ago, mm-hmm. like this was back in a pre-COVID oh world, God. I was a big fan of You're Wrong About, and I think I sent you just like a fan email. Does that sound right? Probably. I can't remember anything, but yes. <laughs> and then I think we talked about Marie Antoinette for a bit. Yes. Well, and I was really excited to bring you on to You're Wrong About because it seems like a, a normal thing for us now, but you were really the first person to bring us back to kind of pre-1970s America for the most part. We had hardly ever gone anywhere before the 20th century and like lingered there and told a story there and like you opened that door for us. Thank you. That's a, I mean, it's such a pleasure. I mean, the whole point and the, the reason I love doing Noble Blood is because even though these people are centuries old often like they feel very modern you read their diaries and they're concerned about normal things and that's a very humanizing experience I find yeah you're the Bill and Ted to you're wrong about oh my god <laughs> yes you're like <laughs> god I, I haven't seen that recently enough to do an impression yeah I can be Bill and Ted it's most tranquil <laughs> yeah what is like the most recent fact you've learned for noble blood research that like you can't stop repeating to people oh well i not to spoil i don't know when this Mm -hmm. is coming out but my next episode is about a sex worker who murdered her husband and then blackmailed her former lover uh, the prince of wales Mm. to get off on it one of the books that i'm reading for research does that british thing where they say the prince of wales and they're referring to the future like Mm -hmm. king edward the eighth the nazi king who resigned for context to marry his girlfriend and play golf or whatever yeah they were like the prince of wales was the last member of the royal family to avail himself of like paid sex workers (laughs) (laughs) you're like absolutely not i can't prove it but i feel like that's wrong that's a wild claim (laughs) they're like we would know they would have told us. <laughs> so I've, I've just been waving that book in people's faces, being like, look what he thinks is true. Look at this fantasy world. Dana, I love everything that you do generally. And I think the people who listen to the show do the Beauty and the Beast episode where you and Sarah were Beauty and the Beast nerds together and talked about the life of Howard Ashman is a huge, huge, huge fan favorite. So this I'm considering this to be not just a sequel in your reappearance but a sequel in reveling in in Howard Ashman to screen yeah. so this is so awesome I think Little Shop of Horrors might be my favorite movie musical my love of Howard Ashman is well documented and I'm just so excited to get to talk about it I got to watch it my fiance had never seen it so I got to watch it with a full uh, neophyte oh what was the response? It's so great. What? How did he sort of respond? I think he really liked it. He's very much like a a straight guy in that he doesn't like have a huge knowledge base when it comes to musicals. So I think his entrance in was he's like, oh, wow, Steve Martin's in this. Yeah, that is like how you get people in the door sometimes. And like, oh, Bill Murray. Oh, Jim Belushi. It's like, oh, Jim Belushi. I think um, John Candy's in it for a bit. Yeah. yeah. Wink yeah, yeah, Wilkinson. Yeah. I was thinking today, Alex, like this show overall is also like a salute to character actors. And this movie is that as well. Yes, it is. This movie is a salute to comedy icons. Yeah. Absolutely. Christopher Guest. We were just talking about Christopher Guest before when he comes in the shop and is wonderful. Sarah, give us the background on uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors is originally a Roger Corman film from, I think, the early 60s. It's Jack Nicholson's first movie. He plays the Bill Murray role. We think in that movie is named Wilbur Force. 
And it is the most memorable part. And like Roger Corman, for those who didn't grow up watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 or something else that would give them a like a Corman background, mentored a lot of young filmmakers, including Francis Ford Coppola, and just made like one million movies. And he made some movies in the space of two days. And you can tell the quality is congruous with that kind of timeline. And so Little Shop of Horrors is like, you get the same plot in the original and the musical, essentially, which is that there's this struggling flower shop. There's a young employee named Seymour who comes across this strange and exotic plant that he grows and it attracts business to the flower shop and everything's going well, but then it turns out to need to eat human flesh. And so he makes a Faustian bargain with this plant from outer space, which is a wonderful combination of like kind of eternal, like operatic themes of love and fame and violence and compromise and selling your soul to get what you want and what you lose when you gain your dreams. And also just like a classic 50s, incredibly campy science fiction double feature picture show kind of a plot of like the scary plant from outer space. And so Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and Dana will be better on the details, but the basics are that they adapted, I think more Howard Ashman because he also wrote the script. Yeah. Adapted Little Shop of Horrors into this wonderful musical that is in every way that the first movie is kind of <laughs> saggy and boring and difficult to get through. This is just like every frame, every second of it is, well, of the eventual movie that was made of that musical is, uh, it is, it is a complete joyride. It grabs you and holds you the entire time. Like Alex, you were saying that this movie is like part of your DNA and I feel the same way about it. And, and the end of the story is that when Disney was trying to revitalize their animated feature sector, which was struggling in the eighties, they were like, get the little shop of horror guys and they'll fix our movies. And they did the end. <laughs> yeah, that was literally it. David Geffen had worked with uh, Howard Ashman on the little shop of horrors, like movie when it eventually became a movie. And he was the one who was the go between and was like, yeah, no, these guys know musicals because it's like mm -hmm. it's like a perfectly structured musical. Right. Like you yeah. said, like it really does move ups, downs. It fits like every save the cat archetype. <laughs> All the plot happens in song. The use of the chorus, I think, is so incredible, like on the level of like line by line lyricism. I don't think it gets better than this. It gets as good, but I don't think it gets better. What's an immediate line that sticks out to you? Shang-a-lang, feel the Sherman drang in the air. Ah! <laughs> I, like I was saying to Sarah, I've, I watched this movie just kind of nonstop until I was like seven or eight years old. Yeah. And I was surprised by like how much I just knew in my heart. Like yeah. I knew every plot point about everything that was happening. I like every part of as sadistic as it is the dentist song. It's a great song, man. And it's like an Elvis pastiche. And it's also very sexy, kind of. Yeah, he's not cut out to be a priest, but he's cut out to be a dentist. <laughs> so, so <good. laughs> okay, here's the lyrics. Oh, that hurts. I'm not numb. Ah, shut up. Open wide. Here I come. Mm -hmm. Here I come. Oh, yeah. oh my God. It's so good. And it's like, yeah, it's like dominant and sexy in a strange way. <laughs> Alex, would you like to try and do like the story of the movie? 
there's a struggling flower shop and Seymour and Audrey work at this flower shop. Mm -hmm. Seymour has kind of been adopted by the flower shop owner. Who's what is his name in the movie? Is it Vincent? Mr. Mushnick. Mr. Mushnick. Mr. Mushnick. So it's not Vincent at all. Vincent is his name, right? Yeah. He has adopted Seymour and Seymour is kind of like his indentured servant at this shop, a Mm -hmm. bookkeeper, um, all around sort of behind the scenes guy. He's like a 35 year old ward. (laughs) Yes, precisely. Seymour is into Audrey. Audrey has, has an abusive relationship with his dentist. Uh, Mr. Mushnick, after days or weeks or years of not having customers, decides to shut down the shop. Seymour has found this strange plant that seems like a fly trap, but there's no record of it. Mm-hmm. He found it under strange circumstances. He found it the gremlins way, which is you go to Chinatown and then something that has nothing to do with China, like that's how it gets into your planet. Yeah, that's where weird things are. And we very much at some point need to talk about like this golden age of the mid 80s of horror comedies, because Mm -hmm. like this Gremlins, Ghostbusters, Big Big Trouble in Little Chinatown. Even Monster Squad. Monster Squad, they're very problematic movies, but mm-hmm. golden age for comedy horror. So Seymour proposes that the business is not being run well. Maybe that's why they don't have customers. Maybe they should try something new. I don't think Seymour would ever say something that subversive. No, but. no, no, no. But he suggests they do something new, which is to put this plant in the front window. The owner thinks that's a ridiculous idea. And right as he does that, Christopher Guest comes in, not as Christopher Guest, just as a fellow, and decides <laughs> to buy $100 worth of flowers which revitalizes the shop. The town is so excited about this exotic plant. They all come in and spend lots of money. Seymour rises to fame as a horticulturalist of note. As like the handler of the plant that everyone loves. Yes, he struggles with this fame and all while this is happening in order to keep this plant alive, in order to sustain his fame and fortune, he has to feed it his blood. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack there Mm -hmm. and his blood is not enough. Eventually he starts to have to feed, you know, bad people and then maybe not so bad people. It leads to a showdown at the end between the plant, which it turns out is an alien that's come to uh, take over the earth in an alternative cut of the movie. And I think that this is the original play ending. I'm not sure that the plants mm-hmm. take over the planet as a very grim ending. Yeah. yeah. In the end, Audrey is able to leave her boyfriend because her boyfriend is fed to a plant, yeah. ends up with Seymour. Mm-hmm. After first accidentally dying from an overdose of laughing gas, I'm going to need some gas for this. Beautiful. (laughs) I feel like he's not guilty of murder, but he's guilty of desecrating a corpse. Right. Mm. He says something like, I didn't kill him, (laughs) but I I fed him to the plant or something something like those lines. But like, that's when Mr. Mushnick catches him in the middle of his needing to like dismember someone who he didn't kill but he didn't save him either. It's like, it's just like Seymour whose life to this point, I think has been very uneventful, has wandered into some very ethically murky territory in about a week. And also like just to kind of scaffold this onto the little mermaid. Like if you watch this movie, you can see the structure of the Disney movies that like millennials and everyone after them grew up with. And the little mermaid is like very close to this. They, uh, Mankin and Ashman made it right after. And one of the many things I think these two stories have in common is that you have a protagonist who believes they have to do something awful in order to secure the affection of someone who already loves them. 
Right. You have to make a deal with the devil to get what you want. Mm -hmm. And then also the big thing that Ashman and Menken said was you need a, for a female character for the audience to root for them, you need them to sing the I want song. And so they said that somewhere that's green and uh, part of your world were sort of analogs in that way. In that like you have the little, the girl sing about what she wants and then the audience is rooting for her and they fall in love with her. And I think that's a correct estimation. I love so much, by the way, that it was just pointed out to us because we did a Hairspray episode. It was pointed out to us that John Waters was recently on the cover of Town and Country, I think, this month. Yeah. And in the I Want song, Audrey is looking at a cover of Better Homes and Gardens of wanting to get out of the shitty part of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And this takes place in Kennedy times. It takes place Mm -hmm. in the early 60s. And now in 2021, we have on the cover of Town and Country, Trash King, John Waters. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful full circle Baltimore 60s musical moment. <laughs> Doing like Perry Mason cosplay, I would call it. Yeah. Yeah. He looks amazing. That's precisely right. Where does this fit into your life, Dana? Where where has Little Shot been for you? So when I was at overnight camp, we did a production of it, like a, a terrible camp production of it with the boys camp down mm. the road. I was one of the runnets. Oh, good. One of the doo-wop girls. Oh, one of the the chorus. There's Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon. (laughs) So that was fun, but that was like so abridged and silly. But I always loved the movie. And then the first time I actually saw a production of it, because ironically, like Little Shop of Horrors didn't go to Broadway before it was the movie. People don't like really know that always. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was like an off-Broadway show. I wrote an article... (laughs) For Vanity Fair, because there were two productions of Little Shop of Horrors that premiered the same week, wow. one at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A., which is like one of the nicest playhouses in L.A., and one uh, off-Broadway in New York, both like with like Broadway all-star casts, and they were totally different. One, The one in New York was like a very classic interpretation, mm-hmm. and the one in L.A. was like a full reimagining. Hmm. And so that was really fun. And I got to interview, you know, all the people involved and the talent and the directors. And so I feel like also for that article, I got really deep into the history and the not ethos of the stage production, like the details of like what it is to put on a stage mm-hmm. production and why I learned like Little Shop of Horrors is one of the most popular junior productions for mm-hmm. high schools to put on. It's like top 10 Mm. to this day because it's very cheap to put on is it Mm. and why is that you could just rent a big plant like the big (laughs) plants are rentals i never thought of like a supply chain for audrey twos so we could just rent a big plant yeah (laughs) why aren't we you could just anytime anyone wants you could just prop rent a big audrey two and will it move or like how do they do that I think it's a puppet. Like, I think you have to have a kid in black, like okay. wearing all black, like standing behind it, moving things. Okay. <laughs> Sweating a fifth of their body weight into it. <laughs> yeah. It's my understanding that it's like, it's not too hard to procure one that will work for your high school stage production. And then other than that, there's not like a big set. What were some of your takeaways of like these two productions between the one that was happening in New York and the one that was happening in L.A.? Like what what was the one in L.A. doing that was that seemed to be an interesting reimagining? So the one in L.A., what they decided to do was like throw away the movie, the off Broadway show, like every version of it that's been done before and like just go to the text. Mm. And so their Audrey 2 
wasn't that classic Venus flytrap puppet. They sort of had it tentacles. Oh. So it was like a different Audrey too, which was fun. And the set wasn't this sort of like charming neighborhood flower shop. It was like a very gritty, like mm-hmm. almost, I want to say like almost American psycho-y in the sense that there was like plastic hanging from the back. Like you felt mm-hmm. like you were in a, in a cool, like a flower cooler room. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a very sterile, like kind of cold, scarier production. Mm-hmm. I mean, still funny, obviously. And they they had a trans woman playing Audrey, mm-hmm. who was amazing. It was MJ Rodriguez from Pose. Huh. And she was just like stellar. So she wasn't also doing, their performances like weren't based on the movie or the productions. Like she wasn't doing that sort of like blonde, like exaggerated 1950s housewife aesthetic right like the kind of woman who would be associated with jack ruby like in that particular yes. little <laughs> bit of time <laughs> yeah like the performances were really grounded like they tried to cut out a bit of the silliness mm-hmm. and like make it really grounded mm-hmm. which i thought was a fun different take on it and then the one in new york the director was like we wanted it to be as close to the orpheum production mm-hmm. as possible that's so lovely i'm so glad you got to do that yeah, I'm glad to know about that. I look forward to, to learning more about that. Sarah, why is this a movie that stuck with you so early and so deeply? I remember the moment when my mom and I were at like Tower Records or something and she saw that they had this on tape and she was like, oh, you never see this for sale. Let's get this. So like I always knew <laughs> that it was like this special thing. You know, we still have forms of media that it's hard to get in various ways, and that makes it a little bit more special. But like things were way more special before you could stream stuff at all. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I knew that this was something that she loved. Like you were saying, Alex, like this fits into the horror comedy boom of the 80s and also into that 80s model of like movies where it's so funny to watch them now where media is targeted so directly at very specific little subcategories of viewer because in the 80s you just made something and you were like this is for everyone everyone go see it go see splash do it <laughs> you know and everyone should and everyone did see splash they were like well that, that that's the movie that we have this week so <laughs> so we'll go see it <laughs> yeah and little shop of horrors i think has that tone that like i feel like as a kid it made me feel like i was drinking like orange juice and club soda it wasn't just a kid's drink. It was a kid's drink and an adult drink. And there was just like the humor that I felt really smart for getting and a ton of stuff that went over my head. And it's just, it's so flamboyantly theatrical. It's so campy. Uh, it's so stagey. Like, Dana, I think this is also my favorite movie musical because it just feels like both very stagey and very cinematic in a way that kind of that meshes for me. It's self-aware and it's like that Christopher Guest scene where he comes in <laughs> and he's like, what a strange and unusual plant. Like, I think that just sums up like the, the ethos of this movie where it's like totally aware of how silly it needs to be to pull it off. Yeah. But then it doesn't undermine itself with silliness. Like it has a real heart. Yeah. yeah. And the love story is so sincere. And I think... I've seen the original ending, but only in the past year, because before I just didn't feel that I was mature enough. And I, you know, <laughs> in the original ending, Audrey gets eaten by the plant and, and sings a really sad reprise of Somewhere That's Green. Mm. Oh, oh, bummer. Yeah. And, you, and especially, you know, having watched this movie so many times, it makes sense to me that, like, you just can't lose Ellen Green. There's such an intense 
fragility radiated by both her and Rick Moranis and these lead roles. To me, like that's the the sincerity of it all that kind of balances out the puppets and the bombastic musical numbers and and the dentist stuff is just that, you know, ultimately this is about the terrible lengths to which people will go if they think they need to secure their lovability through external means. There's a a detail from the original ending that's not in the movie mm-hmm. where the WME agent, I guess it's not WME, it's just William Morris at the time, uh, snips the plant and takes it. Right. Oh, really? This evil plant. And then starts offering it to the audience. <gasps> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. They're like loading up their truck, you know, as they are with the three doo-wop girls at the end mm-hmm. of the play. But like they actually physically offer it, which does feel like a very like capitalistic nightmare where it's like, yeah, the villains are these wily businessmen who are making a profit off this and they don't care about the destruction of the world. The things that this said about like fame and notoriety and then like people Mm -hmm. trying to grab that power from each other and being like, you're not going to like what it's going to do to you. It's literally going to eat you. Yeah. And you wonder why like an increasingly successful singer songwriter duo would be interested in this concept. (laughs) tell us more (laughs) it just feels inevitably self-referential the like here comes along little old seymour and we see fame is like this violent thing that is like happening to him he really just wanted to move out of the basement and feel more confident that audrey was interested in him and instead he couldn't just get that he also had to become an accomplice to a killer plant you know, the Meat Shall Inherit is such a great song because it just shows oh. him like being moved through celebrity industries as if through an intestine. <laughs> I think it's one of the smartest movies about the quote unquote American dream. Mm. Because like, like you said, like all he wants is to move out of the basement. He wants to marry Audrey. They want to live in a white picket fence house with their little lawn and their little kids and eat TV dinners. And in order to do that, he has to do evil things. Yeah. Yeah. The irony is that I think that he believes that Audrey wants more than Audrey actually wants. And that's the thing that incentivizes bad behavior, which is interesting because like her, I want song, right. Is the, like, she just wants to go into like a nice tract house. Like that's basically like what she's describing. And in his brain, like he is assuming she wants much, much more. And and then it's like surprising to him when she reveals that she's loved him the entire time. And like, Mm -hmm. had he, I don't know, just had a fucking conversation with her about it rather than anticipate all the things that he imagined that she would need all of these things wouldn't have happened but you're right like he's driven by this idea that like everybody needs much more than they actually need it feeds this carnivorous machine and the plant is telling him that like you know once he gets these things then then he'll get girls (laughs) right right that's great money girls one particular girl i'll get it for you you just have to murder some people (laughs) (laughs) to quote a plant you gone get it I'm curious about like what what the original stage performance was. Like who did they have for that? They were going to have Eddie Murphy in the movie, which would have been wild. As the plant? Yes. I guess like Eddie Murphy did have a singing career, but it's not what he's known for. Yeah, I wonder how singing that role would have been. The uh, original off-Broadway premiere was an actor named Ron Taylor. Hmm. Hey Ron. Hi Ron. 
to talk about the demographic breakdown of this movie and of Skid Row as well, our main characters, Seymour Audrey, Mr. Mushnick, Mr. Mushnick, I'm going to say is a Jewish plant store owner, played by Vincent Gardenia. He has a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Shiva. Right. He is. There's a song called Mushnick and Son in the musical right. that was cut out of the movie where he's like, the plant is so successful that he wants to legally adopt Seymour, even though he's an adult. <laughs> it's it's one of very like Jewish melody. Like it's very like, duh, 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 duh. and then they're like, our senior and junior shtick, which is like, it's very <laughs> Jewish. So, yeah, I think you're correct. Yeah. And then we have Seymour Krellborn and Oren Scrivello, I think, who's who's our dentist. Oren Scrivello, DDS. D- I'm sorry. Please. Doctor. Doctor. <laughs> I'm sorry. Doctor. Yeah. A dentist that's desperate to be called doctor to the point of like being demented is perfect. Yeah. To, to any of our dentist listeners. Sorry. I'm sorry. But also there are a lot of you out there who are like selling unnecessary fillings and bridge work and you need to deal with that. Get a governing body. <laughs> it's like a sadomasochistic dentist who loves to cause pain is like a perfect joke. Yes, yes totally. Because it's like a joke both for kids and adults. Like kids know dentists hurt your mouth. Mm-hmm. Speaking of something that I think works really well for kids and adults simultaneously, but in a different way, is that when I was a kid, I loved the scene This is an amazing little cameo where Seymour has fallen under the plant's sway and is like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to get that dentist for you because he's beating up Audrey and the guy sure looks like plant food to me and I'll go get him. So he goes to the dentist's office with a gun and the last patient who the dentist sees before him is Arthur Denton. I'm next played by Bill Murray, (laughs) who as a kid, I was just like, oh, this is a funny joke because like this dentist has gotten this guy who actually really likes pain. Why not? And like, that's really funny because the dentist is getting madder and madder because like whatever he does, this guy is liking. And then, you know, you get older and you watch it again and you notice that what really sends the dentist over the edge is uh, Arthur Denton like grasping his shoulder in the in the passionate throes of like whatever <laughs> horrible thing Oren Scrivello is doing to his mouth and you're like oh oh it has <laughs> layers and it's like it is one of the, it is one of the funniest things that I've ever encountered in a movie like even just like that crow that Bill Murray does when he's off screen just like candy bar mm. candy bar gonna get a candy bar <laughs> 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 apparently that was like largely improvised by Bill Murray, which is wonderful yeah i buy that which is wonderful obviously like the pieces of like straight up domestic battery mm-hmm. hit me in a bigger way than they hit me when i was a kid because mm-hmm. i whatever i didn't i don't think i fully understood the gravity at the time so that struck different but yeah that bill murray scene where this guy is going in to get off is great amazing and that guy you know what i think about that guy is like here he is in like some city in the early 60s and he is like a proud and happy and well-adjusted masochist like i'm so happy for him good for that guy yeah he knows himself oh most definitely is it levi stubbs levy stubbs levi stubbs levi stubbs yeah unless i'm just saying that wrong i can't believe how perfect the performance is it is so great 
I don't believe his background was in acting. He had much of an acting background before, obviously a singing background. And I looked him up and apparently it was like this in the cartoon Captain N, which was a cartoon about someone who was a, a, a Nintendo wizard in the 80s. Hmm. And I remember that very well from my childhood. Uh, he did a voice in that. And that's it. And this voice again, like of like the six voices that from anything from my childhood just like live in my brain, like this voice is constantly inside of me. Yeah. And uh, it was so nice to spend time just asking you constantly if you'd like a Cadillac car or a get shot on Jack Parr. He's got your number now. <laughs> Demanding it be fed all the time. All the time. And so Levi Stubbs, this is even, I think, how he's listed in the end credits. He was in the four tops. And so if you've been in the four tops for 20 years, then I don't know, something about just like being a big enough performer to inhabit this giant plant puppet, ultimately a giant plant puppet. That makes sense to me that you can can do that. We did an episode recently on Hairspray, and I mentioned my personal theory that this movie is has a little commentary on the exploitation of Black Motown artists by white management. And it's interesting to me that, like, demographically, our main characters are white. At least one of them, probably two, are coded as Jewish. And then we have our girl group chorus who show up as just kind of random teenagers who are hanging out in the neighborhood who Mr. Mushnick is like shooing away from the shop, but who unbeknownst to anyone will reappear always in fantastic new outfits looking like the Supremes appearing on really big shoe. What's his name? Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. (laughs) 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 And they're just like singing their asses off telling everyone what's happening to them and no one can hear them and no one can listen to them. And then we have Audrey too, who is from space, but who's voiced by an actual Motown singer. And so like the divide between like performing the story or making the story happen and then being like the concern of the story, like the racial divide there is so interesting. Mm. Yeah. In that context, and I think I was probably looking at it a little bit with that read after the the hairspray episode, that struck me as like, is when Seymour says to the plant something about like this never works out for your kind, and I was like, mm. like that's he says that like when they're having kind of like the last showdown at the end. That's right, and it's like Seymour, how many intergalactic nemeses have you battled at this point? <laughs> I didn't know if that was a reference to like when there were more at the end of the movie and maybe that was what that was referencing. Mm. But I was like, as a standalone where you're using this person's talent to get people to come into your store and buy all your other wares, throwing around your kind isn't going to look great out of context. Right. And then even like the neighborhood stuff, so much of the, the drama of the American city is really captured here. Like these are entirely built sets. They filmed this just in a, a big studio in England, I think. Oh. You know, and we know that when they set Audrey 2 in the window, like suddenly these like fancy looking people from apparently different neighborhoods are coming to this flower shop that like maybe used to be in a nice neighborhood, but isn't anymore. And there's, there's a white flight component to all this. And Audrey is like an anchor to pull people back from it. Well, and Audrey One wants to fly. Right. How much does one of those tract houses cost? Like, how much blood do you have to shed to get, like, one little tract home as opposed to all the, the Cadillacs and everything? Oh, yeah. Anything that tries to, like, raise any social issues 
ultimately, if it's not an effective piece of media underneath that, you can't get any message across. The core of it is talking about all these social issues and like white flight and the hellish bargain we all make with capitalism to advance ourselves. Mm. But then it disguises all of that with like a genuinely really funny, fun musical. Yeah. Right. Well, I think it gets away with a lot of that by asking questions without necessarily Mm. being like, and then here's what happens. I think that this shares a lot in common. Well, this will be sacrilegious to some people, but I think that this shares a lot in common with Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was like an off-Broadway, like not seen by many people uh, musical. It gained a yeah. life on film. It, like the, the words cult classic come to mind. Yeah. Cult classic. Yeah. It was like asked a lot of questions without really ever resolving those questions. Because like, I think like once things start to, and I think also like the I see the similarities because they tickle the same thing inside of me from like, you know, sort of like a a lifelong interest in them. But Mm -hmm. I think also where I enjoy them is like you can tell that especially as you get older and watch them, that they're like hinting at a lot of different things that you didn't initially understand without ever offering you the solution to those things, which I really enjoy in art. Yeah. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is about like two inexperienced American teens Honestly, it feels like it's about them going to college, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up and meeting the world and like it's the fact that when they have that blowout, we're hearing Nixon's resignation speech. Like there's just something about, you know, the center will not hold and like America growing up too. And we're going to do an episode on Rocky Horror Picture Show soon. And I'm very curious about just like where we will get with prolonged Rocky discourse. I feel like there's a big divide in how people see it currently. And I can like can imagine that like two of the big arguments out there are like it's terrible to depict queer people as murderers from space. And then the other more historic argument is like it's nice to see queer people depicted. Yes. And sometimes murderers from space maybe have reasons to be murderers from <laughs> space or something. <laughs> Audrey, too, is a very fun character. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not a villain that's like presented as grotesque. They're very cute to begin with. <laughs> and they kind of like are fun and cool and can promise you fame and fortune. Like, it's the devil. It's awesome. Yeah. And you're like, you know, Mr. Mushnick didn't get need to get eaten. Audrey, that was over the line. But like Orin Scrivello. Yeah. Someone had to do it. <laughs> I also think it's worth examining how in the stage production the ending is that the plant eats our main character he eats Seymour Mm -hmm. and uh, takes over New York and then the last number don't feed the plants is like all of our I don't have you either of you seen a stage production No, no I've never seen one at the end the entire cast who have all been eaten by Audrey too come out in like plant costumes like as flowers mm. like they're flowers on the plants and they come out and sing don't feed the plants like ah we're flowers like mm. here we are and I think the reason they sort of correctly understood that that doesn't work quite as well in film is because in the theater you're very aware like oh the actors are right there they're coming out and singing to us it's silly and like there they are And then they come out for their curtain call. And like, you can't really communicate that the same way in a film. Right. It's a different kind of reality to conjure. And when you have kids in the audience, that's a that's something to think about. I do wonder, like, how Dana, do you know, like, how did people feel about changing the ending? Because like, didn't they this wasn't planned to give it a happy ending, right? Like they had to do reshoots. 
No, I mean, like, that's a main point of the musical is that it has a very, like, an unhappy ending. Like, the plants conquer the world, and then they're right. like, and now it's up to you. Don't feed the plants. I think they basically realized as soon as test screenings left people very upset and disappointed. The architecture of film is different than the architecture of theater. Mm-hmm. Like, I think also there are more tragedies on stage, mm-hmm. and I think people are more accustomed to happy endings in movies especially comedies where on stage an unhappy ending almost adds to the comedy I think Hmm. like it's like there's a silliness to then Seymour coming out as like a flower and being like whoops where it's like I don't think that silliness translates yeah I agree and so I think the compromise is that there's like a little Audrey too in their garden in their track test garden yeah I love that end so much. Like that sticks in my brain in such a big way. Like the little smile from the, you know, Audrey two specimen in the garden. I love that too. When I think of seeing tragedy on stage, I think of seeing Madame Butterfly and like the final like aria. She has a little kid on stage with her and she's like, I think singing it to the little kid. And so I could tell like in this performance I was watching that I don't know the correct word for an opera singer, the diva, I guess. She was like clamping her hands over this little kid's ears because she was just going like full tilt, like full lung power. And she was anxious from their face. And you're just noticing like, right, when you're making a movie, ideally, you can like hide all these little things. But when you're on stage, you're like, she's really blasting that little kid, isn't she? She's melting that kid's face. (laughs) Melting that kid's eardrums, vibrating the eardrums into liquid. Yeah, and it is this incredible moment. And maybe in theater, you're able to give yourself over to more extreme tragedy because you do know that everyone's going to come back out and be like, we're okay. (laughs) It's kind of silly to watch a puppet, a giant puppet plant eat a guy in a theater because there's like the verisimilitude is different than in, Mm -hmm. in a movie. And then like plants and tentacles like fall from the ceiling and everyone's like, ah, like it's sort of like a... A haunted house vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see that, knowing that now. The experience of it is you're spooked, but it's silly, where it's like if you're sitting in a in a movie theater or on at home on your couch, I don't know how you can replicate that. Right. And you used to be able to make movies, you know, in the nineteen forties, the period I'm nostalgic for, you could make movies with the expectation that people would see them in large groups and they would scream together and they would have some kind of a catharsis and like And by the 80s, we know that video is taking over. We know that that's not how you can guarantee people are going to experience this thing you made. And like, and speaking of of Seymour and Audrey as a couple, because like we know that Audrey also like thinks that Seymour couldn't possibly be interested in her. Like, what's that about? What? Why? Why the low self image? The Pasadena Playhouse version interpreted it as that she had been a sex worker. Mm-hmm. When she's talking about Oren Scrivello, she's like, I met him in the gutter. Yeah. And so they interpret it as she thinks because she had, you know, engaged in sex work that she doesn't think she's good enough for like a a nice boy. Yeah. Yeah, And she says she wore not classy outfits like these, which yeah. is like the outfit that she's wearing. She wore whatever she was wearing in that situation. When I was a kid, I know I, I feel like I mentioned this a lot, but like jokes like that would just always fly over my head. That and Aaron Brockovich specifically, I was just like, once I get boobs, like I'm never going to stop wearing those exact <laughs> outfits and uh, still waiting. <laughs> 
I didn't make the connection that that Green worked at a Greenwich Village cabaret. Oh, wow. In the early 70s. Probably alongside Bette Midler. (laughs) I absolutely hope so. That was my read. She just worked in that situation at something that in like the 60s would have been considered, quote, trashy or slutty. But Mm -hmm. I, I like the more literal read, especially like if you're talking about these times as her being a sex worker. Yeah, and people just contrive any possible reason to imagine themselves unlovable. And also just like, again, there's too much great stuff to notice, but like just the design of of people's living spaces in this, I think is so beautiful. Seymour, what his pathetic little cot, I believe Mr. Mushnick calls it. Oh yeah, in the basement. Which is like, it's an incredibly narrow bed. It's kind of cruel. I just love Audrey so much. I feel like her house... The way they've decorated it, the way we zoom out after she's, you know, kind of finished her song and there's the bum just like staggering by. (laughs) I feel like they do such a great job of of showing that she's someone who has so many earnest and beautiful and really modest dreams and is just like so bravely in touch with them, even if she is is in a relationship with Oren Scrivello DDS. <laughs> and and Alex also like I listen to the soundtrack all the time and like they condense it a little bit just in the song, but when Seymour is singing with Audrey too debating like can he actually like kill someone for this plant and then he sees Oren and Audrey pull up and Oren is being abusive. It's so intense. Like it always makes me weepy and I'm, and it's such a strong emotional moment. I'm just like, yeah, kill that guy. I don't know anything about music terminology, but just like the things that Ellen Green does with her voice and song are fascinating. Like, and you're like, where is it coming from? <laughs> right. Like everything from like the caricature voice to almost like she has like like an earthquake quality to her voice at some part, parts of the song that's like deep and rumbly and actually like yeah. very profound and a little scary. I, yes. love, I love that so much. Well, I'm always impressed by voices that go like all the way up and down from like intense fragility to intense power. She has real pathos. I don't think it's common knowledge that Rick Moranis is a really good singer. And yet here he is. He's just like, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's not a big deal. I, I can sing. Here's my question. I feel like on Off-Broadway, there's been an influx of hot Seymours. Mm. And I feel like this is a movement that needs to stop. <laughs> Jonathan Groff, who's an incredibly attractive actor. Mm. And now it's Jeremy Jordan. And I'm like, hunks, no hunks for Seymour. No hunks. Hunks have... So many roles written for them, like there are a limited number of leading man roles for like kind of small, nebbishy guys with pipes. Like, don't take that away from them. That's it. And not to say that Rick Moranis isn't a hunk because he is, but I mean like conventional leading men hunks. Yeah, you're not going to be suddenly seamored by someone who's been standing there with a glass cutting jaw the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, it's like just because you give him glasses, I'm not fooled. Right. We haven't talked about Vincent Gardenia's arm acting, which we talked about in Moonstruck. No, he's uh, Mr. Castorini from Moonstruck. Yeah, right. He has the same hand things as explaining the pipes. It's the same character. It's his cousin. It's Cosmo's cousin who lives in another city. It's Cosmo's (laughs) Jewish cousin. Everything is temporary. (laughs) The 
stage design of this, but also just like the puppet itself mm-hmm. looking at the dentist from inside the mouth. Yeah. Oh, uh, so fantastic. The practical effects in this movie, I forget it has the word horror in it. I forget at the end of the day, like this is an 80s horror movie. It's just the tamest of all of them. But like mm-hmm. the effects are so great. Like it feels like a gremlins a little bit. Like it feels like a Joe Dante movie. Like there's there's mm-hmm. like a real tangibility to everything that's happening in there. And it's exciting to see something that's entirely practical effects there's like no visual effects in this movie it's just like fully everything it is it's very funny it's very romantic it's very creepy it's very campy it's very heartfelt it was very funny we're so lucky we're so lucky to have this movie I was so focused on what this was saying intentionally or not about fame and what it was saying about Mm. Seymour's response to fame which is like not chill understandably you are people that people pay attention to with regard to his immediate take of being overwhelmed. Like, how did that strike you? I really love there's a like it'll blow right past you kind of lyric in the meat shall inherit that goes. It's not demand, it's supply, which I feel <laughs> really describes so much. Right. Because like especially in the economy we're living in now, it's not that like you have to go out and like even try that hard to get attention It's that there's so much attention to be bestowed on people. Who will it be? Like, how did Charlie D'Amelio get that many TikTok followers? I don't think that she put an effort commensurate with that number. I think like that many people wanted to watch stuff or wanted to have someone to pay attention to. The supply side rather than the demand side of public attention is something that you hardly ever hear about. And like, that's just, Mm -hmm. and you know, and like, and all of the, practically all of the lyrics are that rich. Yeah. What about you, Dana? There's like a little like operatic section of that song where he's like, no, I can't do this. And then he's like, but then there's Audrey, sweet Audrey. If life were tawdry and impoverished as before, she might not love me. She might not, you know, want me. And I think that's also the the heart of this core is like, he thinks that he really does have to do these things less because he wants to be famous because he's very awkward and shy. And I don't think, you know, his personality doesn't lend itself to hosting a weekly gardening show on network TV. Oh my God. Imagine that show. <laughs> it would now. He ticked a little TikTok show. He'd kill it. But yeah. You're oh right. yeah. <laughs> he would kill like making Instagram reels on how to care for yeah. plants. He'd be like skid row plant zaddy. Yeah. <laughs> Give me Skid Row plants, Zaddy, immediately. Somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Next shirt. That's the next shirt. That's the fucking next shirt. That's it. (laughs) He's going to turn Mr. Motionix into an Instagram store. That's beautiful. They can be a cottagecore Instagram couple. Um, All right. Well, there's no father in this movie. I feel like Mr. Mushnick is the closest we get. Okay. Well, we know he's the father. Mm -hmm. Who's the daddy as far as y'all are concerned? Seymour's the daddy. Seymour's the plant daddy. Skid Row plant daddy. (laughs) That's so true. Seymour's plant husbandry is very sexy. He's very dedicated. Even before this problem, like he will do whatever it takes to figure out a plant's needs. And that's like, that's a good calling card in a in a romantic interest. I would say Arthur Denton, the masochist though, because here's a guy who's just like joyfully, completely self-aware about what he wants sexually and he's going to go get it. And he's going to different dentists like every day. Like, I just think he's got a really nice life. It's kind of noteworthy that he wanders kinkily into like this murder scene and then sort of skips merrily out and nothing bad happens to him. Like, that's just nice. It shows that if you're in touch with your sexual needs, you'll be fine. (laughs) 
we haven't isolated from the from the singers Tisha Campbell for any reason, but like mm-hmm. she went on to be in Martin, which was like huge in my childhood. I watched so much Martin as a kid. Mm-hmm. She went on to be Martin's love interest in that show, and I mm-hmm. love her so much. Like I was in love with her as a kid. I love her the most. I'm so, I was so happy to see her. Who wouldn't be? And she was also in House Party, which I just saw for the first time. Oh, yeah. She's on all the House Party movies, I think. And she's amazing in those, too. Shit, House Party's great. I'm sure you also talked about this in the Hairspray episode. But, like, Howard Ashman being from Baltimore, I do feel like really uh, informs the sensibility of this entire musical. Yeah. That's what I theorize. Yeah. And also, like... To compare to another Disney movie like Skid Row, the big opening ensemble song, like you could watch that and the big opening ensemble song from Beauty and the Beast and just have a great time. Again, it's like it's Mm. kind of mirror images of each other in a wonderful way. These are both musical. I mean, one is explicitly a musical. One is musical ish movies about Baltimore at the exact same time made by queer men from Baltimore, Mm -hmm. which is like. Holy shit. Like they should be sold as a double feature. Like I know that that's not how ownership works, but like, yeah, it should. I said out of this deep and yet in the world of the movie, somehow a part love of music made by black people of that time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Dana, what do you want people to support of yours? Listen to, to a podcast called Noble Blood. If you're interested in stories about Royal people usually behaving badly in history. And if you want to read a YA novel that I wrote, I would really, really appreciate if people went and looked and possibly pre-ordered a book called Anatomy, A Love Story about 19th century grave robbers. Yes. We'll have the link to that in the show notes. So ideally people will do the pre-order. I would be tentatively excited about a grave robber YA book by anybody. But like the fact that it's by you is just like, oh, my God. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much. I'm like, I set this very awkward stage where it's like, it's done. I can't change anything. I just have yeah. to like let my baby go into the world. And it's, yeah. I don't know if you've heard, there's like weird supply chain issues with books right now because of international shipping. I was hearing that. So it's like, yeah, pre-orders are weirdly very important. So mm. if you're interested, it would really help me out to do one of those pre-orders. But I hear that audiobooks are like doing really well as a thing. And like, I feel like an, an, you doing an audiobook of that is like makes a lot of sense. Oh, spoiler alert. I will be reading the audiobook. <gasps> oh, that's yeah. great. They are trying to teach me how to do a Scottish accent. What? Wow. That's so great. Oh, my God. I mean, it takes place in Edinburgh and like I can't do a Scottish accent. I did it for my fiance and he was like, Dana, you can't do that into a microphone. <laughs> the compromise is I'll do a very gentle Scottish accent for one of the characters. Nice. And the the audiobook director has is sending me all these like educational tools to help me make it not terrible. I feel like a Mrs. Doubtfire level of Scottish yes. is good for yeah. Americans because we know something is happening, but we can understand all the words. Yeah, I'll, I'll do like a, a gentle Doubtfire. <laughs> Hello! all right everybody that is it for this week's episode of you are good thank you thank you thank you for listening to this here feelings podcast about movies we appreciate you thank you to carolyn kendrick for producing the episode for being our music director for being wonderful thank you to fresh lush for the beats thank you you right now you the person who is listening to the show 
thanks for making this possible uh, by listening. And thanks for making this possible if you're a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. Follow us at Instagram and Twitter. You can have conversations with us there. Look for our episode inspired playlist in the show notes. Next week, we talk about Rocky Horror Picture Show with our great friend Chelsea Weber Smith from American Hysteria. It is a wonderful conversation. You are in for some good stuff. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are good.